You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. This week, I, on Tuesday, I had breakfast downtown. I had breakfast at, at Joe's down on 2nd Street. If, if you haven't been there, it's a wonderful place to have breakfast. And you go in, you order your breakfast at the counter, which I did, and they're going to bring my breakfast out to me, but they handed me my coffee cup, and it was just a little, it was actually just a normal eight-ounce cup of coffee. But for some reason, as I walked away from the counter, it felt like I was drinking coffee from a thimble. You know, it felt like I had to hold it with my index finger and my thumbs, uh, because I, I'm so used to, like, gigantic Starbucks cups. And, and, I, and I was having breakfast with Graham and Amanda Donaldson, who go to Providence, and I was, make, I was like, how small is this coffee cup? Well, Graham grew up in Canada, and he was, uh, he was saying, you know, I, I've noticed living in America, in the United States of America, uh, how much larger portion sizes are in the U.S., and sure enough, when my breakfast came out, there was like a mound of food on my plate that could have fed my entire family. Uh, I knocked it all off, though. I took care of it. I was not going to get owned by a plate of eggs and bacon, right, and toast and home fries. Uh, I knocked it all off, finished it, ate my breakfast about noon, lunchtime. I'm hungry again. Got to do it all over again. And one thing I've noticed is that grocery bills and portion sizes in our country uh, are kind of going, kind of skyrocketing compared really with the rest of the, of the world. Uh, this phrase, give us this day our daily bread, it means different things depending on where you live uh, in the world uh, today. It's ironic, though, uh, that as portion sizes increase in the United States, I would say that Americans are generally uh, less satisfied we are, we are increasingly dissatisfied or unsatisfied with our stuff, aren't we? I mean, I, I, can, I can go into my house after work and open the refrigerator that's basically stocked and be like, man, we got nothing to eat, right? Where's the food? My kids can come home from school and say, man, I am starving. And I'm like, nope, <laughs> you're not starving. You look pretty good. You look pretty healthy. What is it about the sheer amount of food that we have to choose from, the abundance surrounding us, and yet we can never seem to fill ourselves up? What's going on there? Could it be, could it be that our hunger actually points to something beyond an empty stomach in our lives? Alexander Schmemann was a 20th century Orthodox priest and professor and writer. Listen to what he writes about hunger. He says, in the biblical story of creation, like in Genesis 1 and 2, man is presented, first of all, as a hungry being, and the whole world as his food. Man must eat in order to live. He must take the world into his body and transform it into himself, into flesh and blood. He is indeed that which he eats, and the whole world is presented as one all-embracing banquet table for man. And this image of the banquet remains throughout the whole Bible. It's the image of life at its creation. It's also the image of life at its end and fulfillment when Jesus says that you may eat and may drink at my table in my kingdom. Man is a hungry being 
but he's hungry for God. And behind all the hunger of our life is God. It's really good. With that in mind, we come to John chapter 6. I want to tell you what happens at the beginning of this chapter. Lisa did not read this part of the chapter. It's actually one of the most famous scenes in the New Testament. Jesus has gotten increasingly popular. A lot of people gathering around him. And in this particular scene, there's over 5,000 people that have gathered around him to check him out, to hear from him, to see what he has to say. And uh, it's near the Sea of Galilee. And apparently, it's about mealtime, lunchtime, dinnertime, I'm not sure. And Jesus wants to feed these people. The problem is there's no food around, except there's this one little boy who brought his lunch that day. He's got five loaves of bread, barley loaves. He's got two fish, and he donates it, what he's got to the cause. And Jesus takes this little boy's lunch. Uh, that doesn't sound good. Uh, he received this little boy's lunch, uh, and he has all the people sit down, and he, give th- he gives thanks. The, the Greek word for giving thanks is our word Eucharist. He, he Eucharists, and he breaks the bread, and then he feeds all 5,000 people. It says they ate until they were full. They were stuffed. And then, he, and then his disciples go around, and they pick up over 12 baskets full of leftover bread. That's a pretty good miracle. Five loaves of bread, 5,000 people right? Two loaves of bread today is barely going to feed 200 of y'all, right? And you're just going to come up and get a little bit of it. It's a pretty good miracle. This is one of the seven miraculous signs that, that John records uh, of Jesus. Uh, a sign was not simply a raw display of power, right? A sign was meant to point to something, like signs do, something greater than itself, something beyond itself. A sign was meant to maybe trigger some thoughts in the mind of the people, like, hey, I think I seem to remember a promise of God or something that God did in the past. This reminds me of that. I wonder if this is like the coming one. I wonder if this is the promised Messiah. Uh, Jesus, whenever he does something like feed the 5,000, he's not just showing off. He's not just doing some cool tricks. He's not a street magician, right? He's not an illusionist trying to do sensational things so he gets more publicity, so that he gets more uh, uh, press. He's never like, watch this, Peter. I'm going to make Andrew's house disappear, right? (laughs) He never does stuff like that. Every miracle that he does is significant. It's significant. It points to him being the Christ. Now, the next day after this miracle... The people come looking for him. And the reason they come looking for him, it says in verse 26, uh, is because they're hungry again. In fact, Jesus calls them out on that in verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, y'all are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill uh, of the loaves. And so what's driving them is their appetite. They, They treat Jesus like some sort of cosmic vending machine. They, they treat Jesus like he's some sort of cosmic chef, right? Like, how about another meal, Jesus? That was really good yesterday. Can we do that again? And Jesus then enters into this conversation with them about bread, uh, about hunger, and about life. And he wants them to see beyond the bread sign, beyond the bread miracle, to who he really is and to what he's really offering them. And the big question in their life is, how do I deal with this hunger? 
It's really the big question in all of our lives. How do I deal with this hunger in my life, this gnawing sense of dissatisfaction, this gnawing sense that there's something more, this gnawing sense that I eat and then six hours later, I'm real hungry again. And that's tiresome, that's wearisome. How come I can't seem to be filled up in life? And what Jesus is going to do in this conversation is two things. He's going to call the people to faith. And what he calls them to faith in starts to get real controversial. And then he's going to call them to feast. And what he calls them to feast on gets way controversial. And it's the same thing he calls us to do. He calls us to faith. He calls us to feast. Let's look at these two things together in John 6. Turn in your Bible to John 6 or flip on your smartphone to John 6. I want you to to see where Jesus calls us to faith here. Let's pick up in um, verse 27. Verse 27. Bread miracles happened. It's the next day. People come looking for him. Jesus is like, y'all are just looking looking for me because I fed you yesterday. And then in verse 27, he says this. Do not labor, do not work for the food that perishes or spoils, but labor or work for the food that endures or lasts to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, on the Son of Man, God the Father has set his seal. Jesus is saying, you guys are hungry, but you're going after the wrong food. You're giving yourself to the pursuit of food that doesn't last, that spoils. You got the wrong goals. You need to go after, you need to work for the food uh, that sustains eternal life. And I'll give it to you. And when he says eternal life, they know exactly what he's talking about. When he says the word life, they, they clue in immediately to what he means. And he doesn't mean biological life. He doesn't mean existence here. Jesus is not saying, hey, I'm going to hook you up to eternal life support. Right? And you are going to have brain waves and a heartbeat for eternity. I'm going to give you an eternal food bag that's going to pump food into you intravenously. It's not going to be pretty, but I'm going to keep you going for eternity. You're going to exist. That is not what Jesus means. He's not talking about eternal existence. He's talking about a quality of life. And this word life, we've talked about it uh, already in the book of John. It's this word zoe. It's the Greek word zoe, and it means the highest life imaginable. Life as it's intended to be lived. Life as only God can give it. It's their deep, when, when he says life, they know what he's talking about. He's talking about, talking about their deepest hunger, their deepest longing. And Jesus says, the Son of Man will give that to you. And on this Son of Man, God has set his certified stamp or seal of approval as the only one that can give out that kind of food that leads to eternal life. And you know what? They totally miss that he said that. They totally miss him standing right in front of them. Because the only thing they hear is that word work, that word labor. Wait, you said work not for food that spoils or perishes, but work for food that lasts. What are we we talking about? What are the works that God requires? Look at verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God or the works that God requires? They're not even curious about this mysterious son of man who Jesus mentioned, this God-certified son of man. They're like, wait, what do we got to do? Because we want that kind of food. What is it that we got to do? And they go immediately to self-effort. 
there's something deep inside of all of us that wants to earn it. Deep inside of all of us that, that just wants to meet our own needs, to fill our own hungers, to satisfy ourselves, to say, it's up to me and I got to pull it off. So we ask, what do we got to do? And Jesus answered in verse 29, well, you want to know what the work is? This is the work of God that you believe, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The work of God is to believe. This word believe gets used nine times in John chapter 6 alone, and it gets used way more times in the gospel of John. It's, an, it's a theme in the gospel of John. To believe just means to trust in. It just means to have faith in. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm not primarily concerned about what you do. I want to know what you believe. Where is your trust placed? Where are you putting your confidence? His primary call is a call to faith. And the faith he's calling them to is actually very specific, isn't it? He says, believe in him whom God has sent. So it's not a faith in a complex religious system. It's not a faith in a code of ethics. It's, it's not a code in a philosophy, or it's not a faith in a, a philosophy of life. It's a faith in a person. It's simple trust in a person. That's what Jesus is calling them to. And faith is not complicated. Uh, in fact, faith is so simple that even the smallest child demonstrates faith all the time. Those precious babies that were up here today, uh, they live lives of faith, right? Uh, uh, they, they trust their mama. They trust their daddy, even before they can articulate that trust, right? They can't, they can't give you a profession of faith and the, uh, their faith in their parents. They can't articulate that, but they trust them. They know who loves them. They know where the food is. They don't work for the food. They cry out in faith for food. And they receive their food by faith. They trust in a person, and we all do. We all trust someone to feed us and to fill us. We all trust someone to meet our deepest hungers and longings, even if that someone is ourself. Jesus is simply trying to redirect the trust of the crowd and saying, hey, trust me. He's calling them to faith. And what the crowd wants to know is, well, why should we trust you? And what is it about you, Jesus, that we should trust you, put our faith in you? Look at verse 30 and 31. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So evidently, Jesus' bread miracle made them think about another miracle from the past. Exodus chapter 16, the second book in the Bible. God had just led his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt. They're wandering around in the wilderness. Moses is leading them, and they get really hungry, and they got no food. They have no grain to make bread with. They can't just go off to the H-E-B bakery and get a few loaves like we're able to do. Uh, They're hungry, and so God provides for his people to sustain them. Uh, he uh, drops bread from heaven. It's called manna. It settles overnight on the ground like dew, and it's just this flaky bread. Apparently, it tastes pretty good. It tastes like honey. And he feeds his people. When the crowd brings up this manna miracle to Jesus, they are challenging him. They are 
they are pitting Jesus against Moses because they're saying, Jesus, you fed 5,000 people yesterday. That was pretty good. But Moses, he fed like hundreds of thousands of people. Jesus, you fed us on one afternoon yesterday. That was pretty good. But Moses fed his people for 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus, you fed us with, with, with barley loaves out of a little boy's lunch. That's pretty good. But, but Moses fed his people with bread from heaven, manna. And everybody knows that heavenly bread is better than earthly bread. Jesus, if you want us to trust you, then, then do something to deserve our trust. Show us something more. Lead us and feed us like Moses did. Show us another sign. Frederick Dale Bruner calls this demand for signs morism. Morism. We'll have faith in you, Jesus, but we're going to need more from you. We're going to need to see more from you. We're going to need to receive more from you because we want more. We need more. We, we long for more because we're hungry, you know. Morism is unfaith. Morism is a form of unbelief. And Jesus doesn't let them go there. He challenges them. Look at verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. In other words, Moses didn't provide the manna. You, you know that, everybody. It was God who provided that. And, and also, it, it's not just a past tense miracle. There's actually a present tense miracle going on right now because God gives true bread from heaven right now. And that bread is different than the bread you're talking about, the manna bread. It's actually better than the manna bread. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he. It's a he. It's a person who, came to, who comes down from heaven and gives, his li- gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. So finally, a cry of faith. Finally, they're crying out like these little babies do when, they, when they're hungry. Give us, give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. This is the first of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, I am something. He says, I am the bread of life. You want a sign? I'm the sign. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me, has faith in me, shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. I am, I am the food of Zoe. The thing you are most hungry for, I'm standing right in front of you. And he's calling them to believe in him, to have faith in him, to trust in him. Jesus is the bread of life. He's the object of our faith. Now, let me ask you something before we move on. Is there an area of your life where you are practicing morism with Jesus? Where you're saying, Jesus, I believe you. I'll trust you, but I'm going to need to see more from you first. I need you to show me a sign that you're really real, that you're really there. I need some kind of sign that you really care about me, that you're really powerful, that you really love me, that you really will do the things that you say you'll do. I need a sign. How specifically are you asking for Jesus, asking Jesus for more before you'll trust him? And here's a hint. 
It probably relates to whatever your deepest hungers in life are, the thing you find yourself longing for, whether it's approval or acceptance or security or comfort or peace or justice, rightness. These are actually all good hungers. They're God-given hungers. But the, the question is, how do, we, how do we go about filling those hungers and meeting those needs? Do we seek only the provision or do we long for the provider? Do we seek only the gift or do we long for the giver of the gifts who would meet those hungers in our lives? The deep hungers of our life, I think, are meant to point us in faith to the true bread of life. And so who Jesus is is enough, isn't he? What Jesus has already done is enough. We don't need more from him. He's the bread of life, and he calls us to faith in himself. He calls us to faith in a person. But here's something I want you to hear that's really, like, really important. He calls us to faith in a broken person. Look down at verse 51. John six fifty one. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven... If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. How is Jesus the bread of life? He says, I'll give my flesh for the life of the world. He's talking about his own death. He's talking about the cross. He's saying, your faith must be in my sacrificial death for the life of the world. He will be broken. You see, if if Jesus is only a good moral teacher to us, if he's only a flawless moral example to us, he doesn't really help us that much, does he? I mean, if he's only an example to us, look to Jesus and live like that, pretty soon he just puts me under the pile. I just walk away saying, well, I could never live like that. I could never live that kind of flawless moral life. You see, bread is no good to us unless it is broken, right? I mean, I can look at this loaf of bread right here. It's a nice loaf of bread. looks good. I can go down and smell it. it smells good. But it's, it, it, bread intact does no good in nourishing me. It must be broken. It must be chewed. It must be taken into me to ever do me any good. And so Jesus not only calls us to faith, he calls us to feast on him, to take him into ourselves that he might become a part of us and nourish us by his grace. Look at verse 52. Jesus calls us to feast. This is where the conversation gets really, really controversial. Because he has said in verse 51, uh, the Bible, the bread that I'll give for the life of the world is my flesh. And that's offensive to those that are listening to him. They don't know what he's talking about. That's, it's scandalous what, what he just said. And, and look at verse 52. The Jews then disputed. They argued among themselves saying, how? How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And how is the question? How's that work? Jesus, are you talking about cannibalism? We're going to eat you? That's what they think he's talking about. That's why they're so offended. And Jesus, in this moment, uh, he has the opportunity uh, to kind of soften what he's saying, to sort of tone down the language a bit and say, no, 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 listen, hey, it's just a metaphor, y'all, right? Just talking about bread, 
just an illustration. I need you to follow me here. It's just, you know, just a bread illustration. Don't get too worked up. That's not what he does at all. He kind of intensifies the language. Look at verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. They hear drink his blood and they're ready to, they're ready to start throwing punches because they know that in the law of Moses, even eating, eating blood and meat is forbidden. Drain all the blood out of the meat because the blood is the life of the animal. Don't do that. You're talking about drinking your blood? What are you talking about, Jesus? Scandalous what he's saying. He doesn't tone it down, though. He keeps turning up the oven. He keeps increasing the intensity of his language. Look at verse 54 and 55. Whoever feeds on my flesh. Hold on to that word feeds on. It's a different word than the word eat. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Jesus switches verbs here. He's been using this little word eat, and now he switches to the word feeds on. Uh, And he's going to use the word feeds on for the rest of the conversation. The word feeds on is is a much more violent, uh, audible, noisy sound for eating. It literally means to gnaw or to crunch. The the image is, is like a pack of animals gathered around a kill, and they're just, you can hear them eating as they tear flesh, as the bone, as you hear the bones break. That's the word that Jesus chooses. For some reason, he moves away from this harmless little word, eat, like, you know, I eat a bowl of cereal, to this word, feeds on, which is this violent tearing of flesh. It's, it is scandalous what he's saying. It is radical, the language that Jesus is using. But here's what Jesus says. He's calling them to feast on him. And what he says is that when you do feast on me, you'll be caught up into the life of God. Look at verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides or remains in me and I in him. Do Do you see how intimate that verse is? That is, that is union language. That's communion language. What Jesus is saying is, as you feast on me, I will be in you and you will be in me. As you continue your life as a Christian, I will continue right along with you, but I'll be in you. So intimate. It is communion, covenantal language, and that's what Jesus is calling us to as he invites us to feast on him. And then finally, in verse 57 and 58, Jesus says, As the living Father sent me and I live, this this word zoe again, because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. As we feast on Jesus, we're caught up into zoe, the life that only the triune God has, and we live forever with him. Feast on me, and as you do, you're caught up into the life of God, and you have communion with me. It's awesome. So, 
In John 6, Jesus calls us to faith in him, and Jesus calls us to feast on him. He's the object of our faith. He is the food of our feast. Now, faith and feasting are actually the same thing. They can't be separated. They go together. And I've used this illustration before at church, uh, but it's kind of like a coin. If this coin represents what it means that Jesus is the bread of life to you, then faith and feasting are just two sides of the same coin. They go together. You cannot separate the two. So on one side of the coin, you can't have faith unless you feast on Jesus. Unless you take him into yourself. Unless you join yourself to him. See, you can respect Jesus. You can admire Jesus and say, oh, he's a great teacher and leader. But that is not necessarily faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus means you invite him into your life. You chew on him. He becomes a part of you and he begins to nourish you by his grace. You're not just admiring the loaf of bread. You're eating it. That's what it means to have faith in Jesus. Conversely, on the flip side of the coin, you can't feast on Jesus. You can't enjoy him in the feast unless you have faith in him. Meaning, if you want to be nourished by him, uh, if you want your hunger, your deep hungers in life to be satisfied by him, if you want to get life from him, then you must trust him. You must have faith that the Son of Man took on flesh and gave his flesh for the life of the world. Uh, Without faith, you get no nourishment from him. Faith and feasting go together. In verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. That's such a wide invitation. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. He makes himself accessible to all. So life is this gift uh, to be received, and it's available to to everyone through simple faith in Jesus, simple trust in Jesus. You don't have to have all your theological ducks in a row to come to Jesus. You don't have to have all the doctrinal standards figured out to come to Jesus. You don't have to have all your apologetics questions answered to come to Jesus. Jesus says we receive the kingdom of God like a little child. Simple faith, simple trust. I'll give you an example of this. Amos Young uh, wrote a book called Theology and Down Syndrome. And he tells the story of a mentally challenged adult named Judy. Uh, I'm not sure what, I don't, if she may have had down, down Syndrome, I'm not sure her story. But this is what Judy said about worshiping Jesus. And I want you to hear how profound uh, and yet how simple Judy's words are. Judy says, I want to eat Jesus' bread. I can't wait until I eat Jesus' bread and drink Jesus' juice. People who love Jesus are the ones who eat Jesus' bread. Jesus' skin and meat turned into bread, and Jesus' blood and guts turned into juice. She gets how violent it is, doesn't she? That's Jesus' bread. That's Jesus' juice. And I want to eat it, and I want to drink with all the other Christians at church because I love him so. Because I love him so. 
That is simple faith in Jesus expressed in joyful feasting on Jesus. My prayer for us as a church, as God's people, is that we would go to Jesus in simple faith like Judy did. And we would say, Jesus, would you meet our deepest needs, our deepest hunger pangs? We look to you. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.